CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, our guest is Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi, here to talk about the reissues of Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. You know, it is March and it is heavy metal month here at Rhino, isn't it, John Hughes? Yes, Rich, it's March Metal Madness. Metal Madness! <laughs> you know, to start off, let's talk about the winner of the 1989 <laughs> Grammy for Best Heavy Metal Album, which was so super controversial because they went up against Metallica and uh. Jethro Tull actually won. How did I know you were going to go there? Uh, let's look at <laughs> let's look at it this way. Jethro Tull celebrates forty years of the album A with a three CD, three DVD anniversary collection that expands the group's nineteen eighty album with Steve Wilson's newly remixed version of the original, plus some unreleased studio and live recordings and a remixed version of the Slipstream video collection. Now, for this yeah. new collection, the album's been expanded with five unreleased tracks, and it also has a live recording from November 1980 of the band's full concert at the old L.A. Sports Arena. R.I.P. I know. The full Slipstream video, which made its DVD debut in 2004, is also included in this anniversary edition, but here the content has been newly remixed by Stephen Wilson. Jethro Tull A, 40th anniversary edition, comes out April 16th. Yeah, Stephen Wilson really does a good job with all these remixes. He's done a bunch of the Chicago stuff, too, which really came out great. There's a reason why he's always working. He's good. Yeah, right, right. Meanwhile, Fleetwood Mac fans, hey, you got to be ready for this. Fleetwood Mac Live, Super Deluxe Edition. Now, you know Live was originally released in 1980 as well. This version gives the band's live debut a much-deserved encore with a new 3-CD, 2-LP collection that features, of course, a remastered version of the original release on both 180-gram vinyl and CD, plus more than an hour of unreleased live music recorded between 1977 and 1982 on a third CD. This yeah. set also includes a bonus 7-inch single featuring previously unreleased demos for Fireflies and One More Night. A special tour edition is also available for pre-order exclusively at the Rhino.com store. This one is limited to just 1,000 copies. They're moving fast. I know we're halfway through those. It includes, wow, already? 
Yeah, already this tour edition that's exclusive to rhino.com features the three CD, two LP, seven inch collection that we just described, plus replica ephemera from the era, including a ticket, backstage pass, an ad, a button, sticker, and an iron on patch. You can relive the 80s with Fleetwood Mac with this version. <laughs> All these versions are out on April 9th. Does the tour edition also come with shoulder pads? Yes, it, it should come with shoulder pads because definitely <laughs> if you look at videos from that era, everybody is rocking those linebacker shoulders. Oh, I know. Classic. Well, John, thanks so much. Good info. Thank you, Rich. We'll see you guys next time. Well, Tony Iommi is the left-handed guitar wizard from Black Sabbath that has aptly earned the title Riffmaster from fans and press alike. Largely responsible for creating the heavy metal genre, Tony has had a long career with Black Sabbath that has seen several lineup changes through the years, including highly regarded work with vocalist Ronnie James Dio beginning in 1980 with the albums Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. Both of these are being re-released as deluxe editions on both vinyl and CD. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. Really appreciate it, man. Oh, no problem. It's lovely to do it. Yeah. So we've got these great reissues of Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules coming out. Happy that you're here to talk with us a little bit about them today. Uh, let's just jump right in. 1979, you'd split ways with Ozzy. You needed a new lead singer. How many names were in the hat as a replacement initially? Well, it wasn't really. I mean, it's... Um Ronnie was sort of the first and, and, and last choice. <laughs> I met Ronnie not long before uh, the, before he, he came with us at the party, and we got to know each other. And um, he was the first one we called, really. Wow, that's great! One and done. Is it true that you guys discussed forming a new band instead of continuing on as Black Sabbath for a minute there? Well, I talked to Ronnie on the side about. I was getting a bit despondent with it all because we were going through a lot of different changes and, and you know, at that point, Ozzy wasn't into it anymore and stuff. And I thought, well, the band's going to break up and I, I just I want to do a, a different project, you know. I want to carry on and do something different. Yeah. And uh, I talked to Ronnie about that and he was up for that. But uh, when it came to that Ozzy went and then um, I spoke to the other guys and said, well, why don't we try, try Ronnie, you know. I phoned Ronnie up and got Ronnie over uh, to rehearse with us. We were in L.A. We got him over and started, and he started singing. And of course, that was it. I mean, everybody was, wow, that's great. And then the rest is history. Do you remember what the first song you played was? Yeah, I think, I, well, I had, at the time, I had uh, the riff for Children of the Sea. I played that to him, and he just sort of sang it, you know. Yeah. It was really good. I mean, we already had a version with us. But uh, not a full version. He just, he just sang something on it. So basically, I played, or we played, started playing the song to him and, and in the studio and or in the house. And he started singing some ideas. And I thought, wow, this is this guy's really on it. You know, he was, he was really good. <laughs> 
How was your songwriting process different with Ronnie? How did his vocal style, which is, you know, a polar opposite of Ozzy's, how did it shape your writing? If we'd have got somebody that sounded similar to Ozzy, I mean, there's only one Ozzy. Of course. And that was it. You know, so to try and find somebody that sounded too similar to Ozzy, it would have, I don't know if that would have worked. It, I think to go the opposite way, which was Ronnie, I mean, a different voice altogether, more operatic, more just a totally different singer. It worked really well, and it, it worked with the writing because it made us write different as well. Uh, I was able to come up with different ideas for Ronnie, and uh, we could swap ideas. That I'd, I'd play something to Ronnie, and he'd go, yeah, I really like that. And then he'd start singing something, and then we'd say, well, what, what, we, we need another part. And then we'd work on, I'd play a few bits, he'd go, oh, yeah, that bit there. And, and that's how we'd work it, really. Uh, we, we worked together. So it, it was a good combination. Yeah, true collaboration. Yeah, it really was, yeah. Yeah, I, th I don't know that a lot of people know that he was Juilliard trained. Oh, yeah. Typically, would you bring a riff and that's how it would start? Who had the first ideas for songs usually? Was it you? Well, yeah, I, we, we've always sort of gone on the riff. I've, I've, I've started playing a riff or geezer have a riff or and that's sort of how it happened certainly when we're doing heaven and hell i'd play a riff and uh ronnie go oh, i like that you know yeah. and, and and that's where you go from there that's stage one and then you, you you put another part in another part we got to work like that really close and that maintained up until you know his death until the last album we did right. where we could really exchange ideas it's it's the best way really where you can play something and instead of just saying this is what you've got to sing on and, and and that's it you know it's nice if you can play something and they want to sing on it and 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 he'd suggest an idea what about trying a different chord there and you'd try it oh yeah that's the one that's it because yeah. he'd have an idea in his head for a melody you know right yeah speaking of having a hell of a song but you recorded the album primarily at criteria studios and you also did uh, some work in paris at studio ferber yeah, uh, you'd been producing most of the Sabbath records yourself in the '70s. What was it like working with producer Martin Birch for this record, and of course Mob Rules too? Did you enjoy stepping out of the producer role, or did you miss it? No, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great because it, it's nice for it. It talk when you're in the band to, to to start doing it because you feel like you're a bit bossy, you know. Oh no, we got to do this and got to do that. Yeah. So it was nice it was nice to have somebody else do it so I could concentrate on on the writing of the songs and the and the, the playing really. It worked good and Martin was a good one to have because he didn't come in saying, Oh you've got to play that, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. He came in to record the sound we got and to to put it onto tape, you know. Right. So it was really good for that. And Ronnie suggested him in the first place because he'd worked with him before. I was a bit sort of, oh, God, we never worked. Yeah, we haven't worked with a, a producer for, for many years. But it was, a, it was a great relief for me. And we could, you know, there were certain things Martin didn't know how we worked. And, and so I, I was managing to be able to say to him, well, you know, we're a different ba sounding band. You know, you can't sort of do it like you do some other people. Certainly with Geezer's sound, for instance, Geezer had a certain sound and he liked, I know what he liked. And Martin, when he, he, he was going for more of a cleaner bass sound, I said, oh no, I said, that's not what we'd use. This would be a lot more raunchy. And, he went, and eventually he got, he got it how we worked. And it was just trial and error of, of each of us saying different things. 
But it certainly helped me out a lot because I could then concentrate on what I was doing as opposed to everything else, you know. Right. Now, you got new songs, new singer, a new vibe. Did you get any new gear that helped you kind of get the sounds that you were hearing in your head onto tape? Well, at the time then, I'd had, uh, we had a, a chap who, Ronnie knew, come in we at the house in Florida. We stayed at Barry Gibbs' house. Oh, really? Yeah. We had a guy come in, had worked for Richie before. He'd done a lot of Richie's amps and guitars and whatever. Uh-huh. And so he came in and he said, no, we'll go with Marshall. He ordered six Marshalls. And then he, he had them on a bench in the back and he, he rebuilt them, basically, to give them a bit more oomph. So that's sort of uh, what I um, ended up using, really, was the Marshalls on that album. Yeah, do you typically find that you like to find an amp that sounds the way it is and just goes straight in versus using pedals? Yeah, well, I've always been, for me, I got my sound by amp and amp guitar and I used to have always have a treble booster, a range master treble booster, but I'd had it some guy did some changes to it and and made it a bit more not so much a treble booster, more of a preamp. Okay. And it worked in my old lanes, I used to have it into the, the bass amp socket and it it worked for me. It was uh, it, it gave me the sound I liked. I mean it was awfully noisy. If you if you were in any of these buildings we used to play at sort of like the Spectrum or somewhere like that. Oh, it used to pick up every bloody taxi going, I think. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it's just what you had to put up with. It was, it was either that or you lose your sound. Yeah. And that was part of my sound. And, and when we had this guy come in, I couldn't believe it, you know, when we were, this is uh, later when we had uh, Ronnie, this guy come in and built these amps. And I went, oh, where's my booster? He went, what, where's that? And I said, you know, that thing. He went, oh, I threw that away ages ago. I went, what? <laughs> he said, oh, oh I, I could have killed him, honestly. I, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, oh, no. Anyway, he built these amps, and uh, and, I, and I used them straight into the amp. I didn't use any kind of booster, and it was I just used the, the guitar and amp, and I didn't really use pedals much because always, for me, the volume we played, the pedals used to make such a, a noise, you know. Yeah. In what ways do you feel that you play differently in the Ronnie version of Black Sabbath? Does it have anything to do with the vocal melodies being more intricate and allows you to solo differently and create differently than you normally would? Yeah, I think so. I think it, I think it was um, it got more sort of excitement to it, and 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 I think Ronnie helped me a lot. To, he encouraged me to play more because obviously he was with Richie before and Richie played, you know, solo for half an hour or whatever. Sure. Ronnie sort of encouraged me, so oh, you should play more, you know, play more of a solo, go, go on, go for it. And and so then you sort of play in to sort of please everybody as well to say, what do you think, you know, oh yeah, we like that. Oh, yeah, you could probably do a better one. So everybody would encourage you, you know, including Martin Birch. It sort of pushed me, made me sort of try different things. I love your soloing on both of these albums.
So you guys go out on the road, you're touring to support Heaven and Hell, and drummer Bill Ward leaves the band. What happened? Yeah. Well, we were in, I think, Denver or somewhere like that, and uh, we were due to go on stage in uh, a couple of hours, and somebody said, oh, Bill was left, Bill was gone. Oh, no. Said, what? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, what? He's gone. But, yeah, he just got in his bus and went, oh, my God. And it was panic. It was panic stations. It really was. And, of course, we had to cancel the show. Yeah. Yeah, Bill just, I, I think he'd gone to a stage. He, he, he couldn't deal with it anymore. He was drinking. and He had to get himself, you know, sorted out, really. So he'd just gone. And, I mean, we were shocked as anybody. Right. He didn't tell any of you he was, he needed some no, space. He just he split. Just, he just he just went, and, uh, oh, God, yeah, blimey. I mean, I didn't own Bill for, for, you know, I knew Bill before anybody, for all the rest of the lads. I played with Bill, you know, a couple of years in other bands before we got together with Geezer and Ozzy. Yeah. But, uh, no, it was a shock to me. I couldn't believe, well, none of us could believe it. It was panic, and then we had to try and find a, another drummer. I was going to say, how long was it before you found Vinnie Apice? Vinnie was really the first one. We can't, we had a lot of people presenting stuff, but I think Ronnie mentioned Vinnie uh, in the first place, Carmine's. He said, oh, Carmine's brother plays drums, and he's supposed to be better than Carmine and up and coming, you know. <laughs> so, we said, yeah, let's, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, let's uh, let's give him a try. So we we gave him a try, and we didn't have long because we only had a few days before we had this bloody gig in Hawaii which is a big open-air festival. Yeah. So we rehearsed with Vinny. He sort of got the idea of where we were coming from. And, and that was it. We went with Vinny. And, of course, Vinny, again, had to learn how we are and how we handle things and how we play. And it was a tough job for him, really. But, uh, yeah, he got, he got through it. Apart from the first bloody gig, of course, in Hawaii, he wrote all his notes out in, for his drum things. Yeah. We got on stage and it started raining and smudged all his notes. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, man. So it was oh, like, oh, okay. no. It was, it was like, yeah. And, of course, I was panicking anyway before it went on because Bill, we had this huge drum riser because Bill had a big kit yeah. on stage. It was getting bigger and bigger. And so we still had the drum riser, of course, the stage set. And this little tiny kit was on the stage, which was Vinny's. It was like a, a practice kit. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I went, oh, no, you're never <laughs> going to be... I thought, you're never going to hear that with us. And it, looks, it looked ridiculous, to be honest. We did the gig, and Vinny, I, I was surprised he played it really well. And, of course, after that, I said to him, Vinny, you can't have that kit with Sabbath. I said, it looks ridiculous. So, obviously, he got in touch with his company, and then, of course, he had a big kit. But it was all trial and error again, you know, he'd never experienced that, so he, he had to sort of catch up quick, you know. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a trial by fire. Oh, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about a couple more songs off of Heaven and Hell. Let's talk about Neon Nights, man. This one, hard-charging rocker. This one must have really demanded a lot out of the band live. Yeah, well, I mean, we liked uh, playing that live. It was a, a up-tempo one, and it was good to have up-tempo ones. And that's the thing with Ronnie, you see. We, we did actually hit more up-tempo stuff with him. Bloody 
I came back from the States and I got back to England too early and my accountant says, get out, get out. Oh, no. I just, I just landed in London. He says, get out, get out, get the next flight out. I said, where am I going to go? He said, just go anywhere, the nearest place, Jersey, Jersey Islands. <laughs> so, oh, God. So I got, on the, I got a flight to Jersey Island, flew out there, and I stayed there. Then the other guys came out to, <laughs> to Jersey and we ended up recording Neon Nights in Paris. Wow. Okay, so that's why you guys went to Paris. Yeah, yeah. Sort of basically wrote that idea in the room, in my hotel room, and then uh, and recorded it, yeah. All right, great one. How about Lady Evil? This is another one of my favorite riffs from this album. It's simple, yet it draws you in right away and really captures your attention. I don't think that was done in L.A. or in um, Miami. I can't remember where we actually wrote that. But again, you see, a lot of these come to life with how you, when somebody sings on it, how they're going to sing and and the approach they do on it can make it an exciting song or boring, really. Yeah. And I just thought Ronnie's approach to singing, he, he was very exciting, very demanding, you know, yeah. and um, aggressive. And he, he knew what to sing, he knew what to pick to, for these songs. And um, he had a nice, sweet voice, and he had this aggressive voice. And uh, Lady Eva was one of those where it worked. because I was like that. I liked to try and make the best that we could as a show. Yeah. And Ronnie was the same, you know, and we try, we try and please each other on stage. You know, you'd, you'd all fight to make that best, play the best and do what you could, the best really. And it, we all encouraged each other. And after the show, somebody say, oh, that was, you played great. Or I'd say you'd sang great or it, we'd encourage each other. Or yeah. geezer played great bass, you know, sound great, and uh, and and that's the way it should be, really. Yeah, I, I feel fortunate that I got to actually witness that after the Radio City Music Hall show in 2007. We came backstage and said hi to you guys, and the mood in the room was jubilant. You could tell that you were all really pleased with your performance, and you were very complimentary of each other. It was great to see. Yeah, we like to do that, and I, I think that's a that's a good thing to be you know to, if somebody plays good or sings good or whatever it's good to say that otherwise it just becomes like oh nobody noticed then you know right so we'd all, we would we'd praise each other or or if it was if it was, if it go wrong parasite which sometimes it did you go oh shame we had that problem tonight oh yeah well you know try again tomorrow next night you know but you're always trying to the best we all and and, and it was great to encourage each other to do the best show and for the people and for us. Yeah, yeah. Well, the next album, Mob Rules, you had the song before the album. What was the inspiration, and, and how did the song get used? Well, the inspiration was for the, for the movie. We, we, um, and which movie we were, was that? 
it was the heavy metal movie. That's right, yeah. And they asked us to do a, a song for this, and uh, they sent bits of the movie, but, but they were in drawings, you know, it's like just a drawing of this and that, and then, then you'd have a live bit, and then it'd go back to a drawing. So you, I thought, hang on, this is really weird, isn't it? Oh, that's a different uh, way to write uh, a song, isn't it? To have yeah, to write it to uh, it, like, yeah. Yeah. We went to um, uh, John Lennon's house, actually. We stayed there, and we wrote Mob Rules there. We used his equipment, the, the gear he had in the studio, because it was all left, just like, you know, after he passed away. Really? Um we just used the gear that were there. I think I used an AC30 on that because that was in there. And Geezy used this amp, which I don't even remember what it was. And so we just we just played, and uh, and Mob Rules come up really quick. It was it just came out like that. You know? Well, it's funny because you say you used all that different gear, but it really doesn't sound different to my ears. I think that goes to show that a lot of it's what's in your head and your hands and your heart, really. It, it really is. I mean, you, I've, I've, I've come across that quite a lot. When, um, when I, you know, because obviously one of my best friends is Brian May. Yeah. And Eddie Van Halen was. My two best friends were Eddie Van Halen and Brian May. And, um, and, and when we play together... You could plug them into anything, and they'd sound exactly the same. Give them a different guitar, they sound exactly the same. It's like just the way you play, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about voodoo for a second. You have a really cool, unique guitar tone on that opening riff. How did you get that? I think I used a, a boogie amp for that small, small amp. Not small, but smaller than what I'd normally use. Well, those um, little boogies are wolves and sheep clothing, man. They're small, but they're mighty. Yeah, I think I used that on that uh, on that track. It sounds like maybe there's a little bit of a delay there. It sounds bigger than just like a normal guitar and two and amp thing. Any special effects you used on it? Well, I mean, I got to using always. I always had a slapback, a little dun dun, like you know. Uh, yeah. I use that to sort of fatten, fatten the sound up a bit, you know, because I use that live as well. I, w I wasn't one in for using loads of loads of different effects because it, it just wasn't me, but I try and still keep the sound as pure as it could. Of course, when we had Ronnie, I did start using more pedals because we do Heaven and Hell, which required a delay. So I'd have to have a delay and then a chorus because we'd have uh, used that on Heaven and Hell, uh, on the, the album. Heaven yeah. So yeah, I got to using a, a few things, but not not overly. I recall uh, seeing on stage around that time, were you using a Pete Cornish pedal board? Yes, I had Pete Cornish build me a, a pedal board, yeah. 
And yeah. I, I've heard that his work really is as transparent as it gets. And I, that, that probably goes back to what you were saying. You want to try to get the sound as pure as possible. Yes, absolutely. That's what I wanted. I wanted it sort of, as, uh, I think Brian May put me onto him, as far as I can remember. I, once I got the sound, I said, this is the sound I want. I don't want it to change. Right. So that work on, well, Pete Cornish was good at that. I mean, he's really good at coming up with ideas like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're really happy to have both of these albums coming out and have them available on vinyl again, a nice, fresh vinyl pressing. Really excited about that. Yeah. Coming up on 11 years since Ronnie's passing, it's really hard to believe he's been gone this long. It seems like it yesterday. It really is. Cool. Unbelievable, isn't it? I know. It's tough. Any final thoughts on Ronnie and your time making music with him? Oh, it was really, um, you know, amazing, really. We had, and it was going so good, you know, the last album we did with Ronnie. Yeah. We talked about doing another album. We We were really focused all of us then we, we'd, we'd sort of any kind of egos or anything anybody had it all gone and, and and we could work together and and it was great fun we had a great time doing that album and we had a great time doing the tour and we never put pressure on each other as far as we've got to do another album we've got to do this it was if we want to do it we'll do it and we did talk about doing it, and we would have done another album if Ronnie hadn't have passed away. Yeah. But um, but at least we had that opportunity of of being able to do that tour, and uh, yeah, it, it, it was great. It, tremendous loss, I think, um, Ronnie. Absolute tremendous loss. He got such a unique voice, and 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 the way he presented his voice was was fantastic. Well, Tony, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Good talking with you again. Oh, thanks. It's nice to talk to you too, Rich. Always a good time talking with Tony. I did some digging in my archive and found an interview I did with Ronnie James Dio in 2008 before they took part in the Metal Masters Tour, which also included Judas Priest, Motorhead, and Testament. By then, they called the band Heaven and Hell instead of Black Sabbath to avoid any confusion with the Aussie lineup, and they were touring in support of the recently released Rules of Hell. Since the reunion, uh, it's become Heaven and Hell, uh, what's your biggest revelation about this lineup, and what do you think makes it special and enduring? I think my biggest revelation about this this lineup this time, or the lineup called Heaven and Hell, um, is just how good everybody's become, especially Tony, just how incredibly good he's become. I mean, he was a great guitar player before, but he, he didn't have these kind of chops before. And he didn't have the... Uh, the brilliance that he shows now, not only in you know in, in his songwriting, but in his in his playing. I mean, he's just phenomenal. His his playing, especially his soloing, has just become incredible. And you don't realize how good he is until you play with him. I mean, and as a rhythm guitar player, there is no one better than him. I've never heard anyone better. No one plays bigger, stronger, more accurately than Tony. Uh, more um, more creatively than Tony. He's just absolutely the best. Uh, Geezer was always great, but I mean, he's even 
better than he was before, and that's that's pretty stunning too. Uh, Vinny, Vinny's just a great player. He's a perfect player for this band. Just absolutely perfect. He's got all the chops that you possibly can need. He 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 loves the music. He was there when we did most of it, which is important as well. So he feels like part of this as he should. Um, so again, the the biggest uh, revelation for me has been just how good everybody's gotten. I mean, just really, really, really excellent. I think it's it's amazing to me what a difference there is with Tony's lead playing from before you joined up with them and then after. The times that I've seen you guys live, I can't believe how hard he's shredding. And he's shredding. He is. And it's tasteful. It's not math. Oh, it's not. Not at all. No, he doesn't. I mean, there were times, you know, in the early days that, that maybe it was too early and he didn't, didn't have a, a level to come up to. But, you know, now... He knows for a start how good these songs are that we're playing, you know, whether they're from before or, or from now. You know, they've always been more interested than everybody, anybody thought they were, um, vocally and instrumentally and where the changes went. And so that puts you to a different level. This, because it's a lot more intricate, forces Tony to come to a different level. He knows for a start that I'm not going to go anywhere, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be as good as I can be all the time. So there's another level that he's got to reach. And he has to reach the level with Geezer playing these songs and a level with Vinny playing now. Because, you know, Vinny's a lot more involved in the song, you know, plays it and is so sturdy and strong that not only does it make you come up to that level too, but he gives you a basis that's unbelievable with his timing. And uh, for all those reasons, I mean, it's just such a better band. It really is. Uh, just And again, Tony, Tony's amazing now as a, as a soloist. I can take a back seat to no one. How did your personal writing style change when you first started writing on Black Sabbath versus your previous bands or writing for a song? Well, when I started to write for Sabbath, uh, I had come from uh, Rainbow, uh, and uh, we were a very much more classical kind of band with a lot of melody inside what we did, which is one of the reasons why we got together in the first place, Richie and myself, as writers, and then, of course, players in the same band. So I came from that place to Sabbath, uh, and probably was never going to be anything other than I always was, uh, which was a, more of a classical writer with, uh, I hope, thoughtfulness behind the lyrical content. But it allowed me to do what I really, really wanted to do, which is write in a lot more darker vein. Classical, yes, and melodic, yes, but very much darker. So Sabbath allowed me to just like straight away just dive into the blackness of, uh, you know, of, of what it could be. And... I didn't go too over the top, of course, but uh, you know, far enough over the top for what I had been used to. And so it just opened up this something that I probably had always wanted to do, from the first time I sang some cover tune by Elvis Presley to, to that time with Sabbath. Uh, that's really what I wanted to do. So it allowed me to write as dark as possible, darkly as possible, and I did. Yet still remain incredibly melodic in my day. Well, it's always been important to me to remain very, very melodic. Um, you know, that's what I cut my teeth on. I consider myself to be a singer who's got a voice that's pliable and can deal with what vocal gymnastics give it. Uh, but, you know, sing within my own way and within my own self. Uh, and one of those ways is to be very melodic. I started, you know, very young as a trumpet player and played classical music for such a long time that it became ingrained in me. And so it was something that I wanted to bring to the music that I was going to make. And luckily, coupling that kind of classical attitude with uh, rock and roll in the case of Rainbow and certainly the darkness of Sabbath uh, just held me in really good stead from a success standpoint but really gave me great joy so I wanted of course to stay that way but it is what I am really How is the dynamic with you as the, the lead singer in this band different from when you do your solo act let's say? Uh, it's no different to me no, no, there's no difference to me with being with uh, Sabbath being with Dio 
uh, being at Sabbath in the early days, in the latter days, reforming and doing it again. Um, you know, Rainbow was a very different animal. That was my first time at that at that level, so I perhaps saw my role a little bit differently. But once I got my feet on the ground with that one, my role became the same as always. My role is to be as good as the other people in the band. It's a band. It's all that matters to me. And if I'm not if I'm not great, then I'm so annoyed at myself. I want to I want to shoot myself most of the time because I feel I've let them down. And if they're not great and they've let me down, I let them know that too, just as, as everyone in the band should. But you don't have to let them know because usually they know that because of the people I played with have been so good. Uh, so my role is really the same. It's to be as good a singer as I can, to portray those songs with the emotion that I feel, to let, make sure that the audience knows that we are a band and, and that it's not about me and it's not about him. Um, so my role never changes to me, never has. I'm in a band, and, and I think once you start thinking beyond that, because you are in a band, this is not called Ronnie Dio and Heaven and Hell, or, you know, and it's not called Ronnie Dio and Dio, it's called Dio because that was the shortest way to get recognition because people had known me short to the point, thinking, well, we'll call it Dio. But Dio has always been a band to me, and that name means it's a band. It doesn't mean it's me. If it were, it would be called the Ronnie James Dio Show, which I would never allow anyway. So they're all the same to me. Let's start with the first album you guys did together, Heaven and Hell. Sure. Well, we um, we began to record it here in um, in Los Angeles at uh, the record plant, and uh, things became so politically and business wise screwed up that uh, our manager at the time was Don Arden when I joined the band, and then uh, Don left, and uh, we were kind of left alone without a manager. Then had to kind of fend for ourselves, which we did. Went to Florida to finish writing and to record the album in a studio called Criteria and spent uh, about two months in Miami Beach, or, well, Miami, where it is, and uh, finished writing and made and did Heaven and Hell. And then in that interim time, too, we had a different bass player because Geezer had gone. And then Geezer wanted to come back, and he did, and he played, of course, on all of Heaven and Hell, and it just really worked. Bill, Bill Ward was great on the album. Uh, so we did it in, in Miami and uh, finished it in, um, in Paris, a studio called uh, Studio uh, Fair Bear, named after this famous... Uh, French aviator in uh, I think it was in the First World War and we did the last song there which was Neon Nights and I did it in a studio where no one spoke English at all and we spoke no French so it was a little bit difficult but we managed to do it and uh, so then that album was released and it became you know what it is you know something really really special and it wasn't easy but it was uh, it was certainly productive the song title track Heaven and Hell uh, Heaven and Hell. I always wanted to write a song called Heaven, Heaven and Hell. I was inspired from the uh, uh, with the title from a band called the Easy Beats, who did that song on uh, the same album that had uh, Friday on My Mind on it, uh, and it was a great song. And, and I just love the attitude that you know there was a heaven and a hell part in, in the musically. You could create that that way, and so I, I pinched the title from them and uh, wrote the song Heaven and Hell that I always wanted to write with a dark part. You know, or, you know dark and bad like hell and nice like heaven and back to that again it became I saw I suggested it the tempo to Tony because we had done some couple a couple of things like that in rainbow before it kind of had that tempo uh, like stargazer that we had done that Tony had this wonderful riff dun, 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 dun. you know that became that became the basis of it and we carried on finished writing it and it was heaven and hell knew that was a winner right away right away I mean that was just a monster right off the bat that one that one and Children of the Sea both to me were instantly great great songs that were going to be accepted alright the second album Mob Rules 
Uh, my role was a little bit more difficult to write. I thought, you know, we had well, we had changed drummers, and that didn't make it more difficult to write. But we had changed drummers. Vinny came in for Bill. Instead of writing it the way Tony and I kind of wrote Heaven and Hell, which was like together, just the two of us most of the time. Geezer was back in the mix, and so was Vinny because we did it live. I mean, we went into a rehearsal place and actually wrote songs while we were there, ready. Well, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. And. Uh, it was a lot more difficult. When you have too many minds on it, you know, you, you really lose sight of the, the the great thread and the great aim that Tony and I, I think, had. Uh, and I'm not to say not to say that we didn't do a good job of some of the songs, but I think it would have been faster and easier and a lot more pleasant, judging from what came after that, uh, if we had done it the same way. But you know, so be it. It was a little bit more difficult. Thought there were some great songs on it, but I think we all felt that we had to kind of follow up Heaven and Hell. And um, maybe we were just a little bit intimidated by what, what we had done before. But still, uh, you know, excellent album, stands up by itself, stands up. Um, um, nothing's ever good as good as the first one. It just isn't. That's the magic. That's where the magic is. You don't know what you're getting. Nobody's got preconceived ideas. When you do something like Mob Rules, there are more preconceived ideas. And, of course, now we were doing it in a different way. So, uh, you know, fun to do, but not as, nearly as much fun as having in hell. A title track, Mob Rules. And uh, if you could, too, uh, it has two different versions, if you could kind of comment on that. We were approached uh, by uh, Warner Brothers to be one of the people who wrote a song for the animated film that was going to be released, and so we agreed. Went and looked at the um, the roughs of it and uh, said, well, choose whichever one you want. And so we got to Mob Rules and thought, that seems like pretty straightforward. It makes sense to me. So we chose Mob Rules because it could be a faster tune. We wanted a faster tune. We didn't want to do something heaven and hellish anyway um, so that became the one that we did we recorded it at uh, what used to be John Lennon's studio in um, a town called Ascop and it was eventually bought by Ringo and it was called Startling Studios and there was a studio uh, in the basement uh, and it's the place where John did Imagine where he wrote it in the house that we stayed at and so we did that and then uh, came time for the uh, for our own album we wanted to include Mob Rules in it but we didn't want it to be the same track so we just redid it for the proper Mob Rules album. the album version of Mob Rules. The version that we played earlier during Tony's interview was from the movie soundtrack. Both versions are included in the new deluxe edition of Mob Rules, which is out now along with the deluxe edition of Heaven and Hell. Take care, folks. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.